Atlantis the truth well why Atlantis then uh, why go so far back um, how far back is it well it's often thought that it all started with Plato it didn't actually all start with Plato because he was reporting earlier teachings but many people think it all started with Plato towards the end of his life he wrote two dialogues of course Plato is probably the most famous philosopher who ever lived he based much of his philosophy on his hero Socrates Socrates of course was the one who went out into the marketplace and challenged people in ancient Athens challenged all the establishment figures and challenged all the conventional <coughs> gods of ancient Greece and, and, and um, then he regarded everybody as potentially of equal worth so he'd take a slave boy and say you really you've got the truth within you we only have to bring it out and so he was no respecter of rank or pride or persons and that's one of the reasons he became rather unpopular and eventually he became so unpopular he challenged so many of the authorities in Athens that they actually tried him and, and condemned him on two grounds uh, one was for denying the, ancient, the gods of Athens the gods of the Greeks being a heretic in other words uh, and the other reason was for corrupting youth which was on substantially the same ground that he was introducing them to these heretical ideas and he was actually tried and condemned to death and um, this was in 399 BC he could have saved himself by fleeing the country he could probably even have saved himself by advancing certain arguments or giving certain excuses for his conduct but he refused to do so on a matter of principle uh, he, he basically said in the course of his defence he said perhaps the most famous line is the unexamined life is not worth living and what he had set out to do was to set people to examine their lives and see the real spiritual reasons behind them so he didn't concede an inch he didn't concede any point in court when he was tried and as a result he was condemned by a democratic Athens the world's, supposedly the world's first democracy they voted that uh, he should have to take his own life by drinking hemlock which he did he still could have escaped after the sentence it was weeks before he was supposed to carry it out lots of people gave him escape plans he refused to do so he said well if my own city has decided that I should not live and I have not got the right to escape in any case he said the afterlife world is is quite as fine a one as the present or better and uh, I've got work to do in the afterlife world so he drank the hemlock Plato was a young man then a pupil of um, Socrates and extremely shocked by what had happened so much so that he actually left Athens for 10 years and didn't come back for 10 years um, but when he did come back he was Athens had improved a bit in the interim and uh, many people in Athens were as shocked as Plato was and uh, they were beginning to regret what they'd done and uh, they were beginning to be a little bit more open in their thinking and so they allowed Plato to form what he called his academy there was a great Greek heroic sportsman by the name of Akademos who left some land for use of public learning and philosophy and we get our word academy and the word academic from that Plato established the academy and taught asking for no fees at all it was free to everybody uh, taught um, 
philosophy or his famous dialogues were based on the conversations that took place at the academy and then towards the end of his life he lived the age of about 80 which is a good age for those days um, he wrote two dialogues um, the Timaeus and the Critias and both of these each dialogue was named after a famous figure in ancient Greece and Timaeus and Critias were two of the most famous philosophers and thinkers of the time um, and Timaeus was mainly devoted to the great cosmological species and is still regarded as one of the greatest philosophical treatises of all time but just a little bit of it about four or five pages has a theme that seems to be a little bit out of place from the rest of it but it's about this strange land called Atlantis and it says that um, just before one of the great Greek festivals which I think was about 421 BC when Plato was only still a boy but he's reporting this from later on a group of people who were due to speak at this Greek festival it was called the Panathenaea or, or similar as one of the great festivals anyway got together and said well what are we going to speak about we're due to uh, Socrates in particular was due to give a great oration this was long before his condemnation then it's a group about four or five of them and he, he, he asked what shall I speak about and Critias comes forward Critias was one of the Critias the younger was one of the foremost statesmen and also poets of ancient Athens one of the most respected figures he said, well, I've got a story that uh, my grandfather, who was also called Critias, Critias the Elder, told me when I was ten, and I still have the notes that he... He had the notes of the great, our great founding figure, one of the seven wise sages of ancient Greece, Solon. Solon was the one, about 590, 580, 570, who founded democracy in Athens. He was the most revered figure of that early period of, of Athens is really that if you had to choose one person in the founding of Western democracy you would choose Solon as, as the key person so he said I've got this story that came from my grandfather before that Dropidas, his grandfather then before that Solon our great sage and I have passed down to me Solon's notes of what he said and when he'd set up the democracy of Athens, this is about 595-80 BC, it wasn't an easy process. There were lots of factions in Athens at the time, and they were all metaphorically, not physically, but metaphorically at each other's throats, and they were all complaining. And so on, set up all these laws and this democratic process, and who should consult whom, and what the laws were going to be. And then people constantly came to him to act as referee, and he eventually realised that they were just going to depend on him all the time they were going to ask him about every single thing and they were never going to think for themselves so the best thing for him to do was to go off for 10 years and go for a tour of a foreign tour as it were and let them to their own devices and come back in 10 years and see what happened and so he did that and he, amongst other places he visited ancient Egypt and there he was shown the capital of ancient Egypt was Sais at the time on the, in Nile Delta and he went to this famous college of priests there and he met an ancient priest who was said to have been called Sontius who was thought to have been about 90 years old at the time 
and he started talking to these priests, particularly Francis, and he, and he started um, slightly boasting, I suppose, about Greece and how great Greece was and how it was the centre of civilization and all that. And the Egyptian priest obviously got a little bit fed up with this, and um, Francis obviously took him aside and said, well, look here, young man, because uh, well, I suppose um, Theron was about 70 at the time, so in Francis's terms he was a young, young man. He said, you Greeks are really only children. Uh, you don't know anything that is of real antiquity. Do you realize that this state of ours, the state of size, goes back 8,000 years? So that would put it 8,571 BC, because Theron was talking to him in 571 BC. And do you realize that at that time there was another great Athens, much greater even than you now, which you've completely forgotten about? Because it's been completely wiped out by a great catastrophe. And do you realize that, that this planet Earth goes through catastrophes regularly when the stars in their courses are altered and changed in their courses and a pestilential stream from heaven comes down periodically after the usual time comes again and sometimes the destruction is by fire and sometimes it's by water and sometimes it's by other things and when it's by fire, the people in the mountains who are hurt most, the people in the valleys are hurt less. Or when it's by water, it's the people in the valleys who are uh, flooded and the people in the mountains survive. But those who survive remain as unlettered mountaineers when it's flooded, when it's floods. Those who survive in the uplands, uh, they lose the art of writing, they lose the art of civilization and so you have to start all again all over again as children and because of the exigencies of the time uh, because you're concentrating purely on survival you don't keep records of what happens during these catastrophes and so people forget after generations generations pass and people forget that there ever was this great previous civilization and then Sanchez went on to he said all this is written in our records and he showed Solon these records Size. They were written on, on great stelae or, or pillars or large stones in the temple. And he then said, do you realize that at that time, going back these to the, your Athens, your first Athens, he said, goes back 9,000 years before the present time. That's 9,571 BC, if you take it literally. And then we, at Saïs, our state was founded a thousand years after that, so eight, about eight and a half thousand. But do you realize that at the time your Athens was founded, or a little after, there was a great island outside the straits that we call the, the, the Pillars of Heracles. Heracles is the Greek for Hercules, of course. And that this island, uh, which no longer exists, was bigger than Asia and Libya put together, there's been a lot of confusion about this comment because um, we think of Asia as being the whole of Siberia and the whole of India and China and, and so on, which is obviously impossible for an island in the Atlantic. Uh, but Asia to the Greeks meant what is basically now Turkey. Uh, and in fact, really, the western part of Turkey, because there was actually in Roman times a little province in the extreme west of Turkey which was called Asia well for the Greeks it was a bit bigger than that it was probably the sort of western half of Anatolia so Asia was possibly 
a country about the size of Spain, but it was not, uh, uh, for, for a lot of Greeks, certainly in Plato's time, going back to the 4th century BC, it was not necessarily the immense area that we think of. And as for Libya, we think of a vast country in North Africa, taking up a large part of North Africa, mainly desert, uh, Gaddafi's Libya, but in fact, Libya then was a, a small administrative province just to the west of the Nile Delta, uh, an area possibly about the size of southern England, something like that. And it's true that if you... There was another phrase the Greeks had called Libya Entos, meaning Libya interior, which meant the whole of North Africa. But when they said Libya without the Entos, which is a thing that almost all Atlantean writers have not realised, because they don't go back to the original Greek, you see. Through my brother, who's, a, who's studied ancient Greek, I've been able to get the translation from the original Greek. But when you go back to Libya without the Entos, it meant a much smaller area, probably about the size of this administrative province. So, if you take Asia and Libya together, it probably meant an area about the size of Spain and Libya about the size of Portugal, so the whole of the Iberian Peninsula, or about the same as France, probably, if you take Plato literally. So you've got to think of Atlantis about two and a half times the area of Britain, about all that size of France. And this island was beyond the pillars of Heracles and it had on it a, a, a great civilization. It was founded by Poseidon, that was our great, uh, to, the, to the Greeks, Poseidon was the, the god of the sea, um, famous for his trident of course, which has always since then been the symbol of sea power. You saw it on the back of the old British penny of the trident with Britannia. Poseidon, then there was a great section in the Timaeus about how Poseidon had founded Atlantis and then Plato later wrote another work, the Critias, which was expanded a lot further and taking the two together you get the picture of this large island and other islands uh, on which Poseidon or some great king corresponding to that name because Plato said that what he'd done was translated or so long before him had translated the Egyptian names into Greek so that the Greeks could understand them the original Egyptian names, who knows and, uh, incidentally the original name for the country wouldn't have been Atlantis that's simply a Greek word in Greek it's Atlantidi and it simply means daughter of Atlas so it's rather as if we called ancient Britain um, perhaps the, the daughter of Arthur or something like that. I mean, we wanted some way. Um, the Atlantides were seven sisters, the, the daughters of Atlas. Atlas was a great heroic sort of god-king figure to the Greeks, one of the titans and he had a special association with the Straits of Gibraltar because um, he was supposed to be having to hold up the heavens and of course the, the rock of Gibraltar was mythologically identified with him as being a great rock pointing to the sky which held up the heavens. So, the word Atlantis was simply a Greek way of saying this is the ancient land of the heroes. If you wanted to it's rather as if we called, you know, uh, the, the land of Arthur or something would be equivalent, or perhaps 
some similar the land of Alfred for Wessex or something like that so Plato put the word Atlantis to it we don't know what the original word for it was but it was a, a large kingdom founded by Poseidon there were many generations of kings following that there were ten sub-kings one of them is named interestingly enough the only actual place that's identified by Plato as to where Atlantis was is Gardes and Gardes is almost for certain certainly the same as modern Cadiz and the, the, the king of Atlantis who whose rule included that area was Gadirius and I think we get from that we get Guadalquivir the, the river in southern Spain Andalusia and we also I think get Agadir from it in Morocco that's only my own idea not everyone would agree with that but Plato does specifically say that one of the sub-kings Gadirius actually um, ruled that part of the island of Atlantis opposite to Gardes, um, which was just by the Straits of Gibraltar, what we call the Straits of Gibraltar, then called the, uh, the Pillars of Heracles. So this definitely, this is the crucial passage really in Plato's account because it fixes where Atlantis was, and people have tried to put Atlantis all over the world. You know, some of them said it, said it's really America. Some of them said it's the West Indies. Some of them even said it's Britain. Um, and then a German tried to put it in Heligoland Island, Heligoland Bight uh, in the North Sea and then uh, some people have said it was uh, uh, Tunisia in North Africa and then others have said of course it's down in Santorini in the Aegean, a very small island in the Aegean and if you look at Plato's account he's absolutely specific I mean, and, and other people have said it's purely Plato's imagination and yet other people have said it's purely a literary device of Plato's and that it was really never intended to be anything other than symbolic or um, metaphorical. But you don't get accounts like this which are purely intended to be imaginative or symbolic if they give precise geographical references. But this is very, very precise. He actually says that Gideon, one of the Ten Kings, owns this part of Atlantis opposite Gardes in, in Spain and then um, Plato says the Atlanteans uh, uh, you can look this up in what's interesting Atlantis in Spain which is a reprint of a classic book um, Atlantis in Andalusia came out in 1930 and it gives a lot of detail of very ancient not only ancient scripts discovered which has just been ignored by archaeologists and conventional historians very ancient scripts but also um, ancient harbour work and ancient remains of buildings all around the coast of Andalusia which could well go back to Atlantean times 8, 9,000, 10,000 BC they're constantly pushing the date backwards and also remains of ancient mines gold and silver uh, particularly silver I think and, and other types of metals copper and so on um, going back to about that time and it, it gives a great deal of detail here so that really confirms um, Plato written by a famous archaeologist of the 1920s and 30s who was actually in charge of the Anglo-Spanish school of archaeology I mean she wasn't just any archaeologist she actually had a senior 
position of responsibility and she knew the south southern Spain just as well as her own hometown. I also met somebody a few years, about 15 years back, who had been down in the Algarve where they'd been dredging out one of the harbours. I can't remember. The Algarve is southern Portugal, of course, uh, the southern coast of Portugal. And um, I can't remember what the actual town was, but they'd been dredging one of the harbours and finding all sorts of ancient artefacts there. So we have this precise reference. And then, I'll just complete Plato's story before I go on to what might have actually happened to it and how it got destroyed. Well, it seems, according to Plato, that the Atlanteans were originally very spiritual, divine, they didn't care for material things, um, and they lived um, in in a very organized way, highly organized and and, uh, socially very equitable state. Uh, with everything set up for all different classes of people so that they all lived in reasonable conditions and so on. Uh, But then, without really giving the reason, Plato, towards the end of the Timaeus, says that um, in their latter days the Atlanteans lost the divine spark within them and they became greedy, concerned for material outer things and to those that had the eye to see, that I think means a sort of inner perceptional third eye he's referring to there, because Plato was aware of these things. He was a student of the Pythagorean teachings, amongst others. He said to those who had the eye to see, they could see that they had lost that divine spark and that, that they were, this was overlaid by material wealth and greed. And um, so, instead of the original spiritual impulse they became concerned to aggregate wealth and then they became aggressive as part of trying to conquer other countries and when Plato then says when their their ten kingdoms were gathered together into one which rather suggests that they were not usually unified they were usually rather diverse and possibly even fighting each other but but when they were gathered into one on one occasion they launched a great invasion of Europe and they in fact already ruled according to Plato southern Europe as far as Etruria which is northern Italy and in North Africa as far as the borders of Egypt Uh, incidentally According to Plato's account, Atlantis never actually ruled Egypt, only as far as the borders of Egypt, because often people think of ancient Egypt being actually part of the Atlantean Empire. According to Plato, it wasn't actually part of it. It went up to that point. But then, not being content with that, they decided that they wanted more. They wanted to conquer the eastern Mediterranean as well. And so they launched, uh, having then described in great detail the extent of the Atlantean army, all the chariots and the ships, 1,200 ships and vast numbers of chariots and so on and various computations have been made from Plato's account as the possible size of the Atlantean army and it seems to come out at several hundred thousand men which is very, almost impossibly high figure for the time but not totally impossible the Persians who invaded Greece in 480 BC may have had an army of up to half a million men, nobody's quite sure. It was possible to have really big armies if you gathered together a whole empire. 
Anyway, however many it was, I worked out that it was at least a hundred thousand, if not several hundred thousand. They tried to conquer and the remaining countries in the Mediterranean, but then Francis told Solon, reported by Plato, your ancient Athenians, whom you've forgotten, stood out above all others in their finest hours, rather like we were given account of the Battle of Britain or something like that, or, um, that um, against all odds your warriors shone forth and stood at the head of a great coalition and when all others fell away you fought on your own and so you can see how this was a sort of great national myth to the Greeks there's evidence that long before Plato wrote this account the, the Greeks, the Athenians had celebrated their victory against the Atlanteans because they actually dedicated a special garment to this victory in their festivals for, for a long time before Plato you, uh, you succeeded in defeating the Atlantean army liberating all the occupied countries in the Mediterranean and driving out the Atlanteans and then after a little time this is slightly enigmatic because we don't know what Plato or Sanchez for that matter meant by a little time but after a little time or actually it says after a time it doesn't even say a little say not certain how long it was there were great earthquakes and floods and all your men, all your Athenians were swallowed up by the earth including the ancient Athens itself and in like manner the island of Atlantis sank beneath the waves in the same catastrophe now I asked my brother because he studied ancient Greek, Greek the exact meaning of the Greek words and there was no question you see some people have said that this is metaphorical or doesn't really mean that well firstly where was it well we've established it from the fact it was opposite Spain but the word actually is beyond the Straits of Gibraltar but it actually means facing or opposite in the ancient Greek so it does mean not far from the Straits of Gibraltar perhaps a few hundred miles it doesn't mean 3,000 miles across the Atlantic it doesn't mean it was America it couldn't mean that from the Greek but also what's this word where, when Plato says it sank beneath the waves and, and uh, my brother told me that it actually the Greek word meant very much going down it meant a definite thinking it didn't just mean metaphorical it was a physical movement down that the word the Greek word means so we're talking about an actual thinking if we take Plato literally of a very large island of about the size of France now then Plato's account stops it's incomplete and we don't know why he didn't finish it he was getting very old at the time we think you know, that he was either he died at that point he could have been the last thing he wrote or he switched to writing something else but the, most of the account is there we've got the general picture of what happened so the problem that remains well there are two things which we'll go on to after the interval the, the first problem is the problem of geology and I spent a good deal of time in the late 1990s investigating this is it in fact geologically possible that a large island in the Atlantic could have existed and could have submerged well I couldn't really get proof either way um, the orthodox oceanographers and geologists say that a large island couldn't have existed in the Atlantic and couldn't have sunk 
as Plato says, in a single dreadful day and a single dreadful night. Well, they say that couldn't have happened. I mean, you ask almost, I did bring up some, some well-established oceanographers. Uh, while none, none of them would actually say it was totally impossible, they didn't say it was highly unlikely. One or two might even claim it wasn't possible. But um, then when I looked more carefully at it, I looked, first I looked more carefully at Plato's account. At one point he actually said that Atlantis was a number of islands, not just one island. So that opens the possibility that the size of this island he was referring to, the size of France, bigger than Asian Libya put together, might. We remember that this reached the ancient Egyptians after presumably thousands of years of transmission by word of mouth only, and it was written down by them probably in 1, 2, 3,000 BC or something like that. But I mean, before that it might not have been written down for many thousands of years. Maybe it was and we've lost it, but we don't know. But it could easily, the details could easily have been changed somewhat in transmission. And it could be that the area of bigger nation Libya together refers to the oceanic area covered by an archipelago of islands rather than just one enormous island. Now, if we're talking about a large archipelago of islands covering an area about the size of France, beyond the Straits of Gibraltar, we could include in that the Azores, the Canaries, the Madeira, so the several Madeira Islands, several other islands that we know existed until the rise in sea level that occurred when the polar ice melted at the end of the last ice age. Now when did that happen? The biggest, the most rapid period of sea level rise was 9,600 BC. When did Plato say it happened? He said it happened 9,000 years before Solon talked to Pontius and that was 571 BC. If you take 9,000 years before that, you get 9571 BC, which is pretty close to 9,600 BC, which is the accepted age, accepted point of the most rapid rise in sea level. What was happening was in Canada and Scandinavia, vast amounts of ice on land were melting because there'd been sudden rapid global warming. Now, why that happened is another question that I could go into after the interval. Possibly something coming in from space, but we don't need to... You can ask me about that if you're interested afterwards. But I did investigate that as well. But there was, we know for a fact that there was a rapid global warming, which happened in probably between three and twenty years. A very quick period indeed, or an absolute split second of geological time. And it happened, that happened according to the um, Greenland ice cores. There's been an international team on the Greenland ice sheet, which is the last remaining part of the on land polar ice, North Polar ice, you know, the North Pole. Most of it's over sea, of course, but Greenland ice sheet is over land, so you can actually investigate it more easily. And they've been taking samples, and they've found that there was this sudden rise and they place it just about 9,600 BC and they also say that it happened very, very rapidly. Um, they can tell that from little pockets of ice trapped in the ice and what they do is they take enormous cores of ice, well, well scores of yards long, longer, longer than this room is long, you know, and they take them out and they, they store them and then they just chop them up in little bits and they can, they can find a specific year, not just tens of years, a specific year on this, it's like a time clock. And so we know from, they analyze a little bit of our 
contraction side and the various types of gases and they know when there were certain release of gases and what the temperature was at the time and what melting occurred at the time and there was a sudden melting what happened was we now know uh, a lot of the ice melted over Canada in particular but it was dammed in by a sort of wall of ice and suddenly about 9600 BC that wall of ice cracked open and vast amounts suddenly poured into the Atlantic and this could have happened you know, in a few days because the ice wouldn't have melted in a few days but the last bit of the dam would have broken in a few days and the all water all poured into the Atlantic suddenly raising the sea level and it's thought actually that the sea level rose by something like um, 100 feet I think is it, uh, no 160 feet in 100 years something like that and it was, it was a foot uh, foot a year or more but of that you would have been in that's overtaking a period of 100 years but a lot of that would have been concentrated into one very short time so what you could have had then is this sudden release of water, a sudden rise in sea level but even that wouldn't have been quite as dramatic as Plato pictured it because he says in a single dreadful day and a single dreadful night so what might have happened? well we now know and it's in Hancock's latest book here Underworld, Flooded Kingdoms of the Ice Age did anyone see the series in February? by Hancock, uh, on Channel 4 on Mondays. Put it behind if you saw that. But he said in that, and this is one of the keys, that you have what are called glacier waves. They're not technically the same as tidal waves, but it's the same principle, well, in that it's a great, mighty wave, hundreds of feet high, can be. When vast amounts of water are suddenly released, and sudden great blocks of ice are released and become glaciers, it sets off these almighty waves that go across entire oceans and they sweep over hundreds of miles of, of land and so you would have had this would literally have been overnight in, in a few hours you wipe out an entire civilization through these glacier waves so this could have actually literally destroyed Atlantis on this archipelago of islands much more, many more and much larger islands existed before the rising sea level in the Atlantic including Spain and Portugal going far further into the Atlantic with the continental shelves. Half the Bay of Biscay was then land. The islands, the 400 islands that are now the British Isles, were four times the land area then, and all one big island instead of 400 smaller ones. And there was no North Sea, no English Channel, no Irish Sea, it was all land. And way out into the Atlantic was land. And then it was all flooded. So, you could have got these immense glacier waves literally flooding over the land in a matter of a day and a night easily uh, and then followed by the more gradually rising sea level during the next 200 years which would have permanently submerged the, the, the island so it means that Plato's account isn't quite literally correct because he said the island actually island or islands actually sank in a single day and what it would be is that glacier waves came over destroyed everything in a single day and night and then the sinking occurred during the next few hundred years but after all you can't expect Plato to be a geologist as well as the greatest philosopher of all time really not in ancient Greece what I've covered really is so far tonight in the talk I've covered the the possibility that it really happened and what Plato was really referring to and that it isn't just a fable or tale and that's what I also start off with in this broadsheet here
in fact one of the earliest on things on page two is I'm talking about the possibility that it was a great asteroid that, that hit the earth now that's the put forward in the book that I've got here if anyone wants to look at it it's now out of print by Otto Muck called The Secret of Atlantis and he argues that he relates this to the Maya calendar it's quite a fascinating book he wrote it originally in the 1950s in German came out in in English about 1978 um, and um, one of the earlier books I read on Atlantis and I couldn't put it down once I started reading it was so fascinating but he argues that if you take the Maya cycle and go back not to the beginning of the present cycle because it's in 5,000 something years isn't it 5,200 years but to the one before that you get to 8498 BC and um, he reckons that the Mayans when they he also refers to a, a, a document which is translated from the Latin it was written by one surviving Maya priest in the late 18th century about 1780 or something and he wrote it in Latin because he knew that if it was written in the Maya script the Roman Catholic authorities of uh, what then Spanish Central America would immediately regard as heretical and probably burn it or put it away or something so he wrote in Latin which fortunately means that because we've until very recently we haven't been able to translate Maya script and even now it's uncertain so at least we can translate Latin so it was called the Book of Trilum Balam of Chumayal and Chumayal simply means Yucatan and Trilum Balam was one of the, the was this priest this one of the last surviving Mayan priests and he gives a lot of the myths of the Mayas which otherwise are completely lost you know apart from this document we wouldn't know about them one of the things he says is that there was this great serpent in the sky that they saw this fiery white hot serpent going through the sky and it was so bright you couldn't look at it and, and it then immediately after seeing this there were suddenly great earthquakes and floods and he thinks that this legend that they had obviously for thousands of years refers to something striking the earth and he then looks at what were the, what we call the Adonis group of asteroids which come near to the earth every now and then and he saw that coinciding with the beginning of this not this cycle but the cycle before the Mayan cycle and at the end of every cycle the Mayans say there's a, there's a complete new start and they don't specifically say that everything's destroyed on the earth but they say that it's the end of a cycle and everything has to start anew and that sort of phraseology and so Otto Muck argued that what it was was this great asteroid hitting the earth and he identified two holes in the Puerto Rico trench of southwestern Atlantic just near Puerto Rico north of Cuba and sort of northeast of the uh, West Indies and um, he thought these holes were caused by the asteroid breaking in half and uh, causing obviously great upheavals and he, he then looked at the Azores plateau and he argued that that was a little platelet you know these tectonic plates big 12 big plates that sort of float and 
sort of hit each other, jumble against, rub against each other, and sometimes one moves and that causes earthquakes. Most, though not all, of the great earthquakes around the earth, particularly those recently in places like Turkey and Afghanistan, are on the lines, boundaries where these tectonic plates meet. And the reason the British Isles gets no serious earthquakes is that we're not actually on one of these boundaries, fortunately. Um, but anyway, he looks at the Azores plateau, which is a little triangular area, about somewhere between the size of France and Britain, about one and a half to two times the size of British Britain, Britain. and uh, he reckons that that's a little platelet on its own. Uh, it's where the Atlantic, the two Atlantic, there's the Eurasian plate on the right, and then on the left there's the American plate, and they, the two plates meet in the mid-Atlantic. In fact, the Atlantic Ocean was formed, it's thought, about 58 million years ago, when this plate started being created and pushed, the, split the, the, the Laurasia, which was the northern great mass continent, in half and pushed away the two halves of it and created the Atlantic Ocean. And the split in the north occurred about 58 million years ago, and in the south it was well before that, it reached the north about 58 million years ago. So that's the it's it sort of S-bend starts up Iceland on it and the north and starts so it goes to the left of the British Isles and then down through through the Azores and then equatorial Atlantic and round in sort of S there uh, and um, midway between Brazil and West Africa and where the Azores is there's another it's a three-way split because there's another two plates there's the African plate and the Eurasian plate again. So the Azores are on a three-way split. Uh, it's known that it's a very, very earthquake area. Five of the nine present Azores islands are very much earthquake, uh, volcanic and earthquake areas. Mook said that there was a little platelet there. Now, I've done a lot of investigation of this. I can't find any confirmation anywhere else in a lot of geological books I've bought and things I've referred to. That, that there is a, a little independent platelet there. But if there isn't, it's still a very volcanic, very unstable zone. But he thought what happened was that um, the, the platelet was floating on this, what he thought was semi-liquid magma, this sort of tree, black treacle-like substance upon which all the plates were floating. And that, that the asteroid hit and it caused an eruption all round the little platelet and all that lava, for burning lava, went into the air, raining down all over um, in the, with the prevailing winds all over the Azores and then into Europe. And that that platelet had been an island, that was Atlantis, and that because a sort of vacuum was created when all the magma escaped, it sank down after that. Only problem with Otto Mook's theory is that now it's not thought that the magma is as liquid as was once thought. Uh, it's now thought it's, uh, it's realised to be much more solid and that geologically what he described is not literally possible. And so we have to modify his thesis a little bit. It's very unlikely at any rate that you could have had a sort of floating triangular area of land that could have so suddenly sunk. But nevertheless, his book is, is one of the really important books on Atlantis and it does 
argue, I think the most important and interesting thing is the tie-up with the Maya cycle which started, there are two computations of the Maya cycle 
found 350 feet down below the Atlantic sea level supposedly in the Horseshoe Archipelago 300 miles to the west of Gibraltar and our site thought it was probably the Azores and they were covering up what they were doing this was the height of the nuclear confrontation uh, and both sides by then had nuclear missile submarines the Russians wanted a place you know submarines if their propellers are going they can be detected much more easily because you can you can detect the sound and, and the, the radiation the effects of, of stick if they're nuclear submarines you can detect them much more easily but if they're resting absolutely still they're very much more difficult to to detect so they wanted they were looking for sea mounts that is to say mountains that don't quite reach the surface of the Atlantic but reach within a few hundred feet because submarines can only go down about 400 500 feet or they normal submarines they get crushed by the water pressure of course there are baby escapes specially designed ones very small ones which can go down two miles but I'm talking about normal military submarines which can only go down about four or five hundred feet so they have to find these sea mounts and so they they were looking both around the Azores and in various sea mounts in the Atlantic to rest their nuclear submarines so that they could be within range of the United States if they wanted to do a nuclear response or if they wanted to hunt down NATO naval vessels and they found according to their own account the reason they were cagey about it was because obviously if they gave too much information they'd be giving away the positions of their submarines and these were carefully researched they wanted them not to be known but they, they let one press release out in 1977, I read that on the front page of the Daily Telegraph when it came out. It was referring to a discovery in 1974 of these steps and what looked like a wall. And there actually there's pictures of it in Berlitz's book, and I've got a blow-up of it here, which I'll show you in a minute, if, if anyone's interested. And it does look very, very convincing. And Ed, Edison Sykes was the one who managed to get the photograph from smuggled out of East Europe by some contact he had they, they, were, they were kept secret by the Russians until it eventually emerged when it did emerge they let, released a statement admitting that they had found it and they, so they thought this might be evidence of Atlantis but then what happened was their, their underwater research vessels surface vessels that would let down searchlights and cameras looking for these seamounts they found they were being trailed everywhere not only by NATO spy vessels and planes but also by enthusiasts wanting to find Atlantis and so, and so they eventually issued another statement denying that there was anything in it and was not actually denying that they'd found something in the first place but saying they'd looked again and not found anything but the original statements are quite unmistakable and by some of the very top Russian oceanographers well, there's no doubt that they did find something of great significance. Edson Sykes in 1980 said uh, he forgot to bring the actual photos to the talk, uh, but he, said he had the original. He said that there was very little doubt that they were evidence of some human construction, some building, 350 feet down. And that, if that was in the Horseshoe Archipelago, that's very interesting because that's exactly where Plato put it down. It's about 300 miles west of the Straits of Gibraltar and a, a series of um, underwater plateaus and seamounts that would have been above water until the end of the last ice age that is to say they're less than 450 feet down and one of those is quite large it's actually uh, if I remember right it's called the Gettysburg 
Bank or Gorringe Bank, um, US Captain uh, Commander Gorringe commanding the United States ship Gettysburg discovered in about 1870 or 1880. So it's got those two names. And it would have been an island about the size of Mallorca, which was definitely there opposite the Strait of Gibraltar until the sea level rose. Since then, several other islands have been discovered that have also been submerged by the rising sea level. So you actually get a completely new archipelago, one that doesn't exist at all now, that was just where Plato said it was. Now, in addition to that, we've got the Canaries being very much larger than they are at present. Uh, we've got the Azores again much larger than the present probably about 20 of them rather than the present nine and the central two of them would have been combined together into one much larger island and the Azores would have been at the very least the size of the present day Crete in total land area possibly up to four times the size and since Crete in ancient times managed to be the base for an enormous maritime empire and a great civilization that would give quite enough land area for even the Azores alone uh, for Atlantis uh, then if you combine it with the Gorringe Bank and the other submerged islands and with the Canaries and with the Madeiras and with bits of the continental shelf which you get from Plato's descriptions you know Gadiaras and, and Spain and Gardes and all that but they also ruled that area you really get even without any great catastrophic sinking you still get a really quite an extensive Atlantis but it's not one big island it's an archipelago of islands if you want it to be one big island you have to go for a big catastrophe now, if you do that you have problems arguing with all the geologists and oceanographers they say it's highly unlikely they don't actually say it's totally impossible they always allow a slight possibility but they, they, they you know what they're like they tend to believe in gradual development and, and they, they, they tend to say this is really highly unlikely the other problem with a big very big Atlantis is that soundings have been taken with um, cores that are done on the seabed of most of the Atlantic by now and you can actually tell when, la uh, when seabed has been above water in the past there's evidence of bits of twigs and various land, flora and fauna you can find the, the fossil evidence of it and most of these cores do not show evidence of having been above water you know, on, you know, for in anything like the time of advanced humanity and so you'd have to go back hundreds of thousands of years um, so if you're going to accept the evidence of these cores and I went into this with a researcher of mine who was a specialist in oceanography uh, about one and a half years back in some detail you cannot in fact argue that there was a big continent of Atlantis because it, it just flies in the face of, of, of this evidence so I've opted for the alternative here there obviously was an Atlantis of some sort there are too many worldwide legends and Plato obviously based it on fact he was writing it as fact he knows too many geographical facts for it to be just imagination so I, uh, I've opted as I said in the first half for the archipelago but the, the sort of prevailing esoteric tradition of Atlantis which is that it was a great continent which sank is, is just not true it's not, not possible by the geological evidence and of course all the theophysists and uh, 
and Steiner and Antiprosophist and Edgar Cayce and they, Alice Baker, they all talk about this great continent, the vast continent, that, that science and that isn't correct, I'm afraid. Uh, but you still have a very respectable side of Atlantis of a rather different kind and still plenty of scope for an advanced civilization uh, which got flooded by these great glacier waves. So anyway, I go into this. Now, um, then I talk more about the, the classical writings on Atlantis. There were a lot of classical writers other than Plato who referred to Atlantis. Then I talk about the ancient maps of the ancient sea kings um, which show evidence of if you has anyone read Hapgood's book Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings or know of it you have have you actually read it yeah it's a fascinating book isn't it he argues that these maps like the Pyrrhus map this Turkish admiral in the state of 1613 but that they themselves are not very old but they're based on much more ancient maps and they show all sorts of fascinating things which like the island of Mirajo off the estuary of Brazil for example is shown as an island long and, and it wasn't discovered until well after period, well after 1513 some 20 or so years later and yet in 1513 it's shown there's no way that could be known because they hadn't explored that far then it must have been based on ancient maps but all sorts of other bits of coastline there's bits of Antarctica yeah, the coastline of Antarctica under the ice, yeah. And then there's other bits of America which weren't known, known about or explored. Uh, there's parts of China which are uh, in one, of, I don't think that's a period, I think that's another one of the ancient maps. But if you add it all up, you get to, you realise that there is no alternative but that there were ancient maps from which these, from medieval or renaissance period maps were copied which were probably made in Alexandria as Hapgood's theory as they were probably made in uh, created all, all very near to Alexandria there was a I can't remember the name he names another town Egyptian town near to Alexandria where he thinks they were all centred on that town Alexandria of course was the great centre of ancient learning it was, it was a great library sorry? no it wasn't here after this but it's another one I can't remember the, the word there was another one he, he made no it wasn't that but anyway, I mean, we could look it up. No, it's not very. But it's not very far from Alexander. It's in that area of the Nile Delta. But anyway, I certainly am convinced by this, and there have been many books and arguments about these ancient maps, but it does seem... Uh, for, for one thing, some of them, it's showing the northern parts, they show remnants of glaciers that disappeared thousands of years BC with the last remnants of the Ice Age. And then there are certain bits of coastline which, which are shown, sometimes they're shown in just dotted lines as if there's land that is known to have once been there and disappeared. Um, the most fascinating single thing in these maps is that in the equatorial Atlantic there's a map made in the 18th century called the Bouache map B-U-A-C-H-E and it shows several islands midway between Brazil and West Africa in the equatorial Atlantic, just on the equator roughly and uh, that ties in with an island, a large island shown in the, on the Pyrrhus map which is an island all about the size of southern England or half the size of the whole of Britain I think and it's 
on the grass map it shows this in dotted lines as if it had once been an island and disappeared now I went into the oceanographical evidence for this and strange to relate I said the cause so that it hadn't been above water but in two areas between Brazil and West Africa the strong evidence that some of the seabed there although it's two miles down now <coughs> very deep had has been above water not very long ago possibly as recently as 10,000 BC because they've found evidence of freshwater diatoms which only occur in freshwater lakes and some oceanographers argue that that got swept out from the estuaries of African rivers 400 or 500 miles to the east but that isn't possible because you've got an entire bank of, if they get swept for hundreds of miles they mix in with the saltwater diatoms and you have a general mix but this is whole banks one of the cores there's a whole bank of freshwater diatoms and you just don't get that uh, unless that point was actually a freshwater lake above water and since uh, these diatoms change after the 10 to 15,000 years you can tell it isn't that long ago so there is actually very strong evidence in two places between Brazil and West Africa that there were two large islands very likely within the memory of advanced humanity so my argument is in my book that if we're looking for in the North Atlantic you can get this archipelago of smaller islands plus bits of continental shelf if you go to the equatorial Atlantic you actually have two quite large islands that that the evidence does though it's not well known and of course the orthodox people think this is just a what's the word they use they say it's er erratic an erratic find uh, something that doesn't fit in with other assumed or no, supposedly known evidence and so they, they sort of discount it and say there must be another explanation but there hasn't been there's been actually letters in Science Magazine one of the top American scientists I've actually got the photocopies of those through the library and uh, the people who have argued against it have not really established a case the evidence is very strong there and Hapgood although he dared not mention Atlantis in his book Maps the Ancient Seekings because he was a professor I think he was uh, one of them at American University in New Jersey or was it Maine uh, anyway he was he had a position an academic position to maintain and, and he once confided to Brad Steiger that he, the reason he didn't mention Atlantis was because it's what any academic job was worth would be ridiculed by his colleagues and might even have lost his post so apart from a passing reference without any commitment he didn't mention Atlantis in his book but in fact he does have a chapter on these, this island without calling it Atlantis and uh, he did actually apply this was in 1963 he uh, applied to the then president John F. Kennedy to uh, send a fleet to investigate whether this could have been Atlantis and he was actually due for, to have an interview with John F. Kennedy in autumn of 1963 but of course you know what happened Kennedy got assassinated <coughs> and then there was other things to think about after that and uh, it was it, fleet was never sent but it, it was on the coast the president was taking him seriously enough to give him an interview so Plato describes Atlantis as a tropical island he calls it the island under the sun he says that there was this hard hollow fruit which had milk now it's obviously a coconut 
Now, Greeks, uh, Plato, so I must uh, sup- not supposed to have known about coconuts, especially beyond their normal knowledge, but Plato knew about it. He says it was on Atlantis. He also talks about elephants on Atlantis. Well, we now know that they were in ancient America, though we haven't thought so. And ancient South America, I think I'm right in saying, as well as North America. So, this would have been midway between Brazil and West Africa, and we do have one small remnant. We have some rocky outposts called the St. Peter and St. Paul rocks, which are just the last remnant of this big island, at least I think so. Well, I said um, about... I'll finish by saying a bit about the spiritual implications, because I said... I've talked more about the reality of Atlantis. I do think there's a reality to it, but I think we're talking just to sum it up with archipelagos in the North Atlantic and a couple of large islands in the, in the Equatorial Atlantic. That would then, of course, link in, because it's only 1,500 miles between West Africa and Brazil anyway. It's a lot narrower than it is in the North Atlantic. People, now there's very strong evidence from things like cocaine mummies. Mummies with remains of cane and tobacco in them uh, in Egypt and these could only have come from America I don't know if you saw that program a couple of years back and that people did get to and from America in ancient times and it's beginning to be realised now and remember that before the end of the last ice age the continental shelves were much bigger and so the Atlantic was narrower anyway and the whole of the North Atlantic was filled or much of it was filled by enormous floating icebergs as well as all these extra islands and these icebergs you can actually live on now Eskimos often live on icebergs for long periods and you could use those icebergs as not just small icebergs a few sheets of ice perhaps 10, 20, 40 miles in diameter one's just broken away from the Antarctic ice sheet which is as big as the island of Cyprus did you see that on the news about three weeks ago? well you'd have had things like this during the last ice age all over the North Atlantic all you need is little boats that go from one big sort of island-sized ice sheet to another, then to an actual island, which has now disappeared, then to another ice sheet. You probably only would have, you know, relatively short periods of actually, let's say these were canoes or something, I mean, you might have 20, 40 miles of open water, and then you come to the next ice sheet, or the next island. So it wouldn't have been at all difficult to, to get across the Atlantic, even if you only had canoes. And knowing that the Pacific people, we know that some of the mid-Pacific islands must have required journeys of open water of up to two and a half thousand miles between some of the, some islands are two and a half thousand miles apart for, away from other, the nearest other island. So if they did that, and we know they did that, because we know that's the only way they could have been inhabited, we know they had canoes in the Pacific, some of the islands there are at least 40 feet long possibly up to 100 feet sometimes taking 40, 50, 60 people in one canoe we, the latest evidence suggests that I mean we're not talking about anything fantastic at all we don't even require them to have had advanced technology what they did have was an incredible intuition and insight you could tell whether there was an island over the horizon from the cloud formations or from the flight of birds uh, they actually had their own we might call them primitive compasses, but they worked very well. And the Vikings had them too, carrying over from ancient tradition. And uh, they also had their intuition, their psychic sense, much more 
keen than it is today because ours has been dulled by all our high-tech society and the rat race of life or they were much more in contact with the elements and so they had all sorts of power I think that the ancients this is coming on now more to the spiritual side I think the ancients were advanced in a psychic sense now Edgar Casey, who I've also studied says they had a high-tech society I find this very hard to, to believe he, he talks about having television submarines and, and uh, lasers I think there was some confusion in Casey's subconscious, unconscious mind between his fairly accurate predictions of some of the future. For example, he said the laser would be reinvented in 1958, and that's the year it was invented. He even said they would use a ruby for it, which it, they did, and he actually described that. But he then said they had them in Atlantis, and somehow I think there's some confusion in his... He, he was all unconscious in all his, his channelings, between the, the future and the past. I, I find it... See, we haven't found any of the evidence of a really high-tech ancient, not in a physical sense, because not everything rusts away. You find remains of high-tech machinery, things that don't rust, certain types of metals, certain types of plastics or durable materials you would have found. And all we find on the land areas that were covered in the supposed Atlantean Empire are fairly advanced Stone Age artefacts and uh, magnificent Magdalenian remains and magnificent bone carvings of horses and animals and things, but we don't find high-tech remains. Well, I think they were advanced in a psychic, spiritual sense, but I don't think they're advanced in our conventional high-tech way that we think of as, you know. As far as the sort of spiritual meaning of the Atlantis, I think that Atlantis is I think Plato gave the story as an object lesson in what happens if you become too proud and too materialistic. Um, he, if you get, it's always said, how the mighty fall, and I mean, if you reach a peak, you're in danger of falling further. And it says that said of even for spiritual teachers and it goes that if you reach a high peak you can, fall, you can suddenly fall from that well I think he was warning that people who reach and he may have had the Greek even the Greek gods in mind but he wouldn't have dared say it or he might have shared the faith of Socrates but uh, he was really warning that if you reach a point where your great masters and you're adulated and you're followed and your great cults are founded in your name that's the time to be most wary because that's what he said of the Atlanteans they reached this divine point and they were like gods and they didn't care for material things and then suddenly he doesn't say why they fell but he implies it's because they got complacent they just got too self-satisfied they just thought they were I suppose it's a warning against sitting on your laurels, thinking you've achieved every, everything, and then just assuming that you're perfect and you don't need any further progress. So that's what it sounds like to me. You have to read between the lines. I think Plato was very wary of being too precise because he could have been talking about certain Greek uh, leaders as well uh, of his time and uh, there were certain figures of this time who certainly were exalting, exalting themselves and he didn't probably want to give the message too precisely or he could have been talking about the gods and I think 
Plato was pretty sceptical about it. A lot of his, because by that time, the Greek the cults of the gods and goddesses in Greek had become very, very ritualistic and adulatory and, and rather uh, rather lost their original meaning and their, their original um, purity. And certainly, after what happened to Socrates, you know, it, it had become. Now, was it? I uh, can't remember his name. One of the greatest Greek uh, um, scholars of early the century. Can't remember his name now, but he called it the failure of nerve. He, he wrote a book called The Five Stages of Greek Religion, and one of the chapters called The Failure of Nerve. The Greeks got so taken up in it. It's rather like religion today, as we know it it became so conventionalised and so ritualised that the reality had gone out I think that's partly what the message Plato was getting across because he was saying if, if, if you have you know, your great divinity and, and, and he described in great detail that Atlantis had their temples and all the, the kings that had statues put in the temples and so on it was rather as if he was saying the danger of all great spiritual impulses they start pure they then become ritualised, everybody worships them, they think they've got the complete answer, they don't dare to deviate from the, the forms, they get more and more repetitive and ossified and more and more adulatory and, and you have to go through all sorts of rituals. I think really that's what he was warning against, but I think it was a very, very veiled message because he just couldn't, couldn't be too precise or he would have got, he would have been in danger. So I, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is, is the warning against materialism. The Greece of his time was becoming very wealthy. Athens had become the central one of the Greek states. It had, it had taken a lot of the wealth of the other states. It had championed, after defeating the forces of the Persian Empire in 480 BC, it had um, taken tribute from all the other states. And the great temples were being built in and around Athens and great oracles and oracles of Delphi and so on and um, they were all bringing tribute to Athens I think one of the things and then then there were the wars with Sparta just before Plato wrote this and Sparta defeated the Athenians and the Athenians were for some time ruled by Sparta then they became independent again but it was a it was a relatively fallen Athens that Plato was writing about it was a time when religion had become somewhat corrupt and when and Athens had been humiliated having been great and having been looked after by everybody so I think there was also a metaphor here for, for Plato so he was talking about pride comes before the fall basically but he was also talking about the inner life as opposed to the outer and he was saying how to those who had the eyes to see, they could see that the, the Atlanteans had lost their divinity, that they were concerned only with material wealth. And he was also talking about the danger of aggression, that the Atlanteans fell by implication because they fought this war of aggression to conquer the whole of the Mediterranean. And by implication, that's why the earthquakes and floods occurred, because he said at one point that Zeus wanted to humble the Atlanteans, and so he brought together the whole congress of all the gods he gathered them all together to how to solve this problem of the Atlanteans and then Zeus spoke and that's where the dialogue ends now I wonder 
wide end at precisely that point uh, maybe Plato was actually a bit nervous about writing down the exact words of Zeus because that he might have been uh, accused of heresy once he was claiming to produce Zeus's exact words and so never dared to actually write what they were one doesn't know, maybe he really did die at that point but I think Plato's academy was a bit vulnerable, it was just outside Athens it, 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 it was probably a bit worried about his position there but then of course you've got all the more recent, I mean since Plato you've got all the other esoteric writings about Atlantis I mean you've got Edgar Casey who says that there was um, the souls of the Atlanteans were coming back in modern times he thinks the Atlanteans developed a high-tech society I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible I don't think it's likely but they may have been advanced in a psychic way he certainly says they, they were that as well uh, and he says because they do certain and the theosophists and Steiner say the same because they do certain techniques of that magic that this had rebounded on them uh, that, that their original spiritual purity had come to trying to use spiritual powers to control others which is the essence of black magic and that these souls whether or not they had the high tech society by one means or another they were trying to control others for their own good and that's what brought on the destruction Steiner says that there were certain forces of reproductive forces that were misused in land he doesn't specify in detail what they were and the theosophists talk in great detail about the, um, the, the use of black magical powers so these Atlantis had to be destroyed because it, it was corrupting the very inner forces of nature Casey says one of the last straws was that they were developing genetic manipulation which is very interesting indeed because that was in Casey's time in the 30s and early 40s long before they were beginning to do it in modern times and he, uh, he says that this was um, misused and this was one of the final things that determined the destruction of Atlantis now how precisely this might have been whether it was actually done in a scientific way or whether this was some kind of psychic influence on uh, genetics or the reproductive process one doesn't know but practically all the spiritual writers on Atlantis say that Atlantean souls are coming, have been coming back in modern times and they, we have to relearn the lesson and, and, uh, and uh, this time meet the same challenges and not repeat the same mistakes and whether or not we're repeating the high-tech side of things it's still the same in principle and the principle is that whatever our discoveries are on a scientific or psychic level or both must be used for the good of humanity and for truly compassionate and uh, uh, humanitarian ends and not for the control of, of the great mass of the population by the few which is what the Atlanteans are said to have done many people think the Egyptian civilization was an offshoot of Atlantis and, and if it Atlantis was destroyed and they had had an empire reaching the borders of Egypt well that's just what you would expect isn't it that refugees would sort of escape into Egypt if they'd been driven out of the main part of the Mediterranean by the Greeks they might have survived in North Africa 
and some people think the Berber civilization of, of, of sort of Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia with its remarkable rock art and everything that's of Atlantean origin as well mm. and then they, they discover all sorts of things on the Canaries uh, including pyramids in Tenerife and strange inscriptions on Mount Tadi which incidentally the earliest, earliest Greek author which is the main mountain of Tenerife uh, a volcano in fact isn't it you, you would know about that soon because you? Um, you, you went there didn't you yeah. Um, and the earliest Greek writers in fact put Mount Atlas on Tenerife not in North Africa at all and so it got moved because they lost the knowledge of the Canaries the later Greeks and I think it may have been moved before that from some other Atlantic island part of it part of the main part of Atlantis to Tenerife you know this they may have sort of re because they lost that you know once the other islands are lost they took uh, an island on canaries so.